We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough. We pet our neuroses till they curl up. Good everything, wherever the hell you are. My name is Ashley Maritson. This is Sarah Willie Hill. And we are Demons, Demons and Dames. That was brilliant. Thank you. Welcome to another slightly off-center episode of Demons and Dames. Today we are, I should be telling Sarah something. It's about time I told Sarah about a wonderful <laughs> woman in history. <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm a bit too busy being a wonderful woman making history myself these days. Yeah, see what I said, Sarah? Yeah, I've got a lot of work on. So, um, <laughs> sorry about that. We're doing another special episode, but hey, special times call for special measures, and if an episode about night witches isn't a special measure, I don't know what is. I am really excited. I first came across the night witches when we were uh, researching for Maria and the Battalion of Death, and since then I've <sighs> always, always wanted to kind of do some more research, so this is this quarantine has been a great chance for me to kind of delve into this group of women rather than I guess an individual woman and I first came across the term night witches when I was watching a Kate Bush drag tribute act really that's not true but I think it would be a great <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong I've been to, I, I've been to see a lot of Kate Bush based drag but I've not actually seen night witches come up in it but wouldn't that be a great Kate Bush album I feel like that would be a great Kate Bush album I think you know, she did Babushka. Surely there's room for Night Witches in her canon. Is she still making albums? My understanding is she's mostly fiercely guarding a fairly large pocket of Cron Cornwall and um, opposing <laughs> the uh, Happy Ramblers' right of way. Life goals for everyone. Bless her. <laughs> Life goals for everyone. You're right. I mean, you know what? She's done everything already, right? There's nothing left on her bucket list. Let her, <laughs> let her be. Let her be. <laughs> Uh, it kind of reminds me of Sherlock Holmes going off to the downs to raise bees. Do you mean Arthur Conan Doyle? No, Sherlock Holmes. Or do you books. mean Sherlock Holmes? I mean Sherlock Holmes. He, he, really? Yeah, Sherlock Holmes retires like at the end and goes to like raise bees. And then I think actually uh, Agatha Christie had Poirot go off to the countryside and settle into a small town and start um, growing marrows as well. But that only lasted like one book obviously but i bet they were prize-winning marrows in their oh time. they were ginormous marrows milk-fed marrows the best marrows <laughs> so while we continue to make these special episodes as i'm calling them opposed to uh sort of stopgap episodes while uh ashley um puts her life shit together <laughs> Sorry. um so because it, the chances are that there will be more of these non-biographic in the conventional sense slightly left field demons and dames topic-based episodes in the near future if you have anything in particular you'd like to hear about please fire your suggestions at us yes twitter instagram email whatever we'd love to hear what you want us to do while we're kind of muddling through quarantine recording and to be clear, when I said us, it is Sarah who manages the social media, as you probably gathered from the fact um, that it's, well, it's just so bloody lovely, isn't it? 
I don't know. I never Aww. look at it personally, but I hear it's nice. <laughs> I mean, but also you do all the Instagram because, you know, uh, I think I tried yeah. and then you you wouldn't let me, which is fine because I have an underdeveloped sense of this. I mean, that that is exactly that is exactly that is exactly what happened to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you wanted authenticity, and I said collage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Ash, are you excited, delighted, and enthralled to hear about the Night Witches? Um, all three of those things, and any other adjectives you'd like to throw at them, or do me verbs? <laughs> Christ, <laughs> not my mind. You know what? Let's let's just say I'm looking forward to it very much. Okay, what do I? What what what, what can I tell you about the Night Witches? I, can, I okay, they are Russian. They are female fighter pilots from the, ooh, either the First or Second World War. <laughs> That's it. That's what yes. I got. Yeah. No, great. So I first came across these when I was actually researching World War One, and we did our, I think, brilliant episode on Maria and the Battalion of Death. And I was kind of doing general research um, as background to look at Russian female fighters or Polyanitsa, these kind of warrior heroines that are quite, quite a, a big part of kind of Russian mythology and history. And I came across the Night Witches, which was this particular squadron of female bombers during World War II. These women were actually the 588th Night Bomber Aviation Regiment, but they get the word, uh, the nickname Night Witches from the Germans. My approximation is Die Nachtixen. That sounds right. And the name actually comes from the fact that when they were coming towards the, the targets that they were dropping bombs of, they would turn off their engines and glide towards the target. So there was no, there was nothing that the Germans that warned them of their approach except this slight like whooshing sound that sounded like the brooms of witches going through the night. Mm. Oh, I love that. That's so stealthy. It's funny, isn't it? How um, I suppose it makes sense that sort of like the best nicknames are the ones that are given by the enemy. The sort of ones, you know, the names used internally are quite dry, you know, women's battalion of yada yada. There was this really, apparently during the First World War, the German troops referred to the Scottish regiments as the ladies from hell, because they were, because they all wore kilts, <laughs> which is not, which is not a name you would ever give to a regiment internally. <laughs> did the ladies from hell embrace their nickname the way that the night witches did I feel, I, i'm sad to, sad sadly i feel they probably did not i mean you Aww. know there's a lot to be said for the scottish sense of humor but we're still talking about early 20th century men here aren't we toxic masculinity ruins the party again <laughs> so the the night witches were really proud of the nickname that they'd gotten and I think they they kind of held it as like a badge of honor and so they started referring to themselves as the night witches as well. Which is a term that's been used as a slur against women for centuries. I like the idea of it kind of being reappropriated and, re and embraced and held up as a kind of menacing banner. Yeah completely. You know I, I don't like to kind of throw away the term throw around the term badass women but I think the, the Night Witches for me are the pinnacle of 
women breaking outside of kind of the the role that society has put them into in a time of crisis and acting in a way that was incredibly heroic and brave and successful. Sorry, what do you mean you don't like to throw around the term badass women? I mean, literally, well, every third phrase <laughs> you use is badass women. <laughs> Maybe I don't like to uh, overuse the term badass women, as it were, but for me, it's like the, the Night Witches are the pinnacle of that idea and that concept. So as we kind of looked, if you listen to our Maria episode and the Battalion of Death, they these were female fighters during World War One who were fighting under the... The Tsar, followed by the Whites. So after the Russian Civil War and the, the Bolsheviks kind of came into power, they stopped women from fighting in combat at that point in time. So the Marxist and Bolshevik ideology promoted equality among the sexes and the genders, but they didn't really push or approve of women in active uh, combatant roles. And you see this in the Civil War. So they're pushing women to be engineers and to be nurses and a lot of other roles that wouldn't have been open to women previously, but still not pushing women onto kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat or anything else. In the 1920s and 1930s, one of the opportunities that became open to a lot of women, which really is where the story starts, is that they had these flying clubs that opened up. And what's quite cool about these flying clubs is because under the communist system, they were really open to anybody who was interested and had the ability. And so you have a lot of young women learning how to fly planes in the Soviet Union in a way that they wouldn't have been able to in any other country because it went against the gender norms and it was expensive and all of those other things. So by the time you actually get to World War II, you have a large number of very, very well qualified female pilots and that's kind of what makes all of this possible wow and why were the soviets so keen to get people flying i mean it's always been a fairly elite pursuit was it something to do with the kind of like them seeing aeronautics as the you know important part of the future and just trying to get as much their population airborne as possible or i think like often ash you hit the nail on the head <laughs> Flying was seen as is something that was of the future. There was this massive push under Stalin towards futurizing Russia, building railways, improving technology, training engineers, training scientists, and making the Soviet Union kind of the pinnacle mm. of cutting-edge technology. And aviation really only came in at the very, very end of World War One and wasn't really importance in terms of how the world was fought but it was massively important by the time we get to world war ii yes i suppose also to a certain extent you know russia's just so bloody big isn't it like <laughs> yeah it's a real role from the sort of internal infrastructure kind of like you know i don't i sorry i've run out after the word infrastructure because i don't really know what me one means uh what the word means but uh you know <laughs> It's a real, there's a real incentive just in terms of, you know, managing an efficient internal infrastructure in having, you know, a large population, you know, in, in having, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 we we yeah. totes. 
we all know what you mean. Planes are good Bru- and things are good. Planes are good. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Brilliant point, yeah. and, and and I think we'll find her very well made. <laughs> Before we get into the Night Witches, we need to talk about a particular woman, Marina Rotskova, who is the reason, really, that the Night Witches even be- came about. And she is somebody that I wish we could do an entire episode on, maybe we will at some point. She was this amazing Soviet pilot and navigator she was born in on the 28th of March in 1912, and she was born to middle-class parents. I think her father was an opera singer, and her mother was a teacher. She didn't have any kind of early interest in aviation whatsoever, and she was actually studying to be a musician, and her goal was to become an opera singer. In 1919, kind of just coming off the back of World War I, her father died in this tragic motorcycle accident, uh, when she was still quite young, and she I kind of abandons. Like opera singer. Yeah, I know he sounds fabulous, doesn't he? I know that's a lost indeed. So she kind of she's in high school at this point, and she ch- switches over from this operatic training to study chemistry, and she ends up working in a dye factory as a chemist, which honestly sounds pretty cool. I would love to have done that. Yeah, not so much. Though I understand the classic opera singer turned chemist transition. <laughs> uh, and then she she kind of uh, she leaves the dye factory and she starts working as a draftswoman in the aero navigation laboratory in the Air Force Academy. And while she's working there as a draftsman, she learns how to fly, and she becomes one of the most famous female aviators of the early. 20th century. Ah, kind of like the Amelia Earhart of the Soviet Union. She's often called the Russian Amelia Earhart. (laughs) So it's a very apt comparison, and they were active kind of at the same time. Uh, I'm really pleased I was able to dredge up the name Amelia Earhart, actually. I had to go deep into my (laughs) mind bank to find that one. (laughs) Uh, Would you say it was missing? Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, that was good. I had to go even further into the mind bank there to to realise why that was funny. But once I got there, I saw it was very funny indeed. (laughs) I mean, mostly I just cracked myself up. (laughs) Keep keep it together, man. Keep it together. Have you ever, you know, wanted to be able to fly? You know, is that something that appealed to you? If you had, you know, if you were a young... A young gal in the 1920s, the dawn of, you know, aviation, would you have been up, up and away? Well, when I was like three or four years old, my dad made me an entire, like, kind of 1910 style airplane, like, that I could sit in and pretend to fly in out of cardboard boxes and Velcro and duct tape. And it took up our entire (gasps) living room. And I think it was there for about two months. And it was honestly my favorite thing. And it had like two little places to sit so there'd be me in the front and then there was a the the navigator place in the back and i would put all my stuffed animals in there and we would go on lots of adventures together your mother must have just been thrilled (laughs) (laughs) yeah it doesn't really appeal to me to be honest i mean i can't drive and uh, i find cycling quite well i mean absolutely terrifying i don't really like moving at great speed when I'm ostensibly the one in control 
Uh, I enjoy it if I'm not, you know, roller coasters or fast cars with boys. But um, yeah, no. I, I, if anything, I, I always used to like the idea, and I still rather do, of um, not, not flying, but just taking enormous sort of leaps, a bit mm-hmm. like the BFG. <laughs> I feel like that would give me the right measure of control and yet also the experience of elevation that I'm looking for. Um, I used to practice it in the pool quite a lot and I I think my game would be quite strong. I'm quite good at jumping over things anyway, so uh, that would be cool. But um, But actually flying is a bit much. Like I said, you know, I'm... Last time I was out on a Boris bike, I got so anxious that I decided I was going to cycle onto the curb, and I cycled onto the curb and and fell off it on a completely empty street. So, uh, yeah, no, 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 not um, not so, no, no. Uh, no. <laughs> so all the more kudos to these crazy, crazy birds. Yeah, so kudos to Marina. Um, so Marina Roskova became the very first woman to be a navigator in the Soviet Air Force in 1933. She actually, she became a navigator in 1933, and by 1934, she was already a teacher in the Air Academy, and that was also the first for a woman. She set a number of long-distance records. Most of these were between 1937 and 1938, while she was teaching at the Air Academy. And I'm just going to touch really briefly on one of these because it's devastatingly famous if you're interested in kind of any kind of aviation history. And I just couldn't leave it out. I tried. So this is the flight of the Rodinia, which means motherland in Russia. So these three women were Valentina Grzebanova, Polina Osinskia, and then, of course, Marina Roskova. And they set out in a Tobolev ANT-37 plane, which was a converted DBT long-range bomber named, as I said, the Rodina. So they, they set off from Moscow to the River Amgum, which was 3,671.44 miles away. And this took them actually 26 hours and 29 minutes. But it they broke the world record for distance in a straight line without landing when they flew this plane. And so they not only broke a world record, it was also quite a harrowing journey. As the bird flies. As the bird flies, exactly. Oh, what was it that somebody said? Oh, I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer yesterday. And Tara, it's a bit where Tara and Willow Willow get back together and everyone's like so happy. And Spike is like, oh, the birds are flying again, which is now my new favorite euphemism for lesbian sex ever. Spike, my top teen crush. Just, <laughs> just. Spike. I can't watch Buffy anymore. You know, I can't because I know if I go there, I may lose myself again. Mm. I lost three years of my teens to Buffy. It's like a, you know, it's a gateway to total obsession. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a gateway drug to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) So it was a really harrowing flight, mostly because how these, um, the DB2s were arranged is that you have two separate cockpits. I'm just gonna say the word cockpit a lot and feel slightly dirty. And they're they're completely separate from each each other. So you had Marina in one and the other two girls in the other one. 
And basically what happened is the the navigator's cockpit has no entrance into the rest of the plane and is very, very vulnerable in a crash landing. And they couldn't find an airfield because the visibility was so poor. And this is before you have a lot of like the radio technology that you have on, you know, literally almost all planes for the last hundred years. And so they couldn't, they, they were running out of gas and they were going to have to make a crash landing. And so Marina knew that she was in, because she was kind of in the tail end, she couldn't move into the rest of the plane. So if they made it, they had to do the crash landing, she was probably going to die. So what she does is she parachutes out of the plane and the other two are able to land it more or less safely. But then it takes wow. her 10 days of like wandering in the wilderness to find the the plane site and she's eating like chocolate bars and berries surviving and it takes it takes the russian army military eight days to find the site and then they just camp out and wait there for two days until marina walks up and she does and so on the 2nd of november 1938 all three women were decorated with the hero of the soviet union award and they're the this is the first time that women ever received the award and the only ones to do so before world war ii wow can you imagine that moment when she came out of the forest and they've been waiting for her wondering if she'd ever appear yeah you know russia is just I mean, I, I believe we returned Immense. to the fact that Russia is massive, man. I mean, no way you could wander for 10 days in any direction in, in, in Britain without coming across a little chef. <laughs> 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 that was good. <laughs> so these three women, you know, Valentina, Polina, and Marina, become kind of these massive aviation heroes. And they're symbols of Soviet people, both of the technology, technological advancement of the Russian people, but also kind of the gender equality and the fact that you have women that are being encouraged by their governments and by their society to, to do these things. And I think it's, it's a great kind of testament to the Soviet Union at this period of time. I mean, you have famines going on, you have, you know, the five-year plans and the collectivization of farms, and you've got the Great Terror, and a lot of things are going terribly, terribly wrong. But at the same time, this space has been opened up for women to kind of do things that they wouldn't have been able to have done anywhere else. And I think that's awesome. Well, it wasn't all, it wasn't all bad. That's... That's something that I think as Western historians who are coming like out of the Cold War still in some ways, like should really have ignored and haven't really taken into account. So it's something I like to to bring up every so often. And Stalin himself was absolutely pleased with this world record and the, the survival and the heroicness of these three women. And he evidently you know, said at a dinner party that Marina was like a living statue to Soviet might. So that becomes a bit important later on. But at this point, in keeping with Soviet ideology or thoughts around kind of gender, women haven't yet served in active combat. Exactly. So the Soviet leadership encouraged women to volunteer with kind of these local paramilitary organizations where they would be trained to defend their homeland if they ever needed to, but they didn't really have a lot of opportunities in the military, or if they did, it was things like 
training, teaching, um, support, like civilian supports roles within the the army, the navy, mm-hmm. and the air force. And the air force, of course, is this new exciting thing because it's you know no one's really had air forces before. But something really yeah. shocking, at least from the Soviet perspective, happened in 1941. Do you know what it was? Did the Germans invade Russia. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And because of the Soviet Nazi non-aggression pact, Stalin was completely caught off guard, more or less, when the Germans actually turned around and invaded. So the Soviets had not anticipated the German attack, which happened at four in the morning without a formal declaration of war. And the Germans attacked boldly at once. They concentrated their attack on the air bases all along the border. And this had a huge impact on the Soviets' fighting abilities from the air. It destroyed almost all of their new fighter planes, many of which had yet to be camouflaged because they hadn't been preparing for this. Some of those fighters who did take off on their planes to try and counter the German attack had as little as four hours of flight experience and most had only like 15. So you have these brand new planes with these Russian men that are really, really poorly trained trying to defend this onslaught of the Germans coming in and destroying their air bases. This obviously has a massive impact on Soviet morale. And across the country, because of these flying clubs, you have these women who are very, very experienced pilots, and they immediately are volunteering for active service in the Air Force. Some of them are actually showing up, sorry, at the Air Force headquarters in Moscow and just being turned away. One was evidently told verbatim, things may be bad, but we're not so desperate that we're going to put little girls like you up in the skies. Go home and help your mother. And so Marina obviously, doesn't take this lying down or very well. And she goes on the radio on the 8th of September 1941, calling for women pilots to be allowed to to fight. And she is this massive hero in the eyes of the Soviet people. That's amazing. And exactly a month later, on the 8th of October, Stalin puts in a formal order for the formation of an all-female aviation corps. Not only would the women be pilots, but also the support staff and the engineers. It's interesting that when they do go female, they go entirely exclusively female, as if the idea of an integrated male-female unit, well, that's just a step too far. (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, um, you do actually get two integrated units as the war progresses, which is quite cool. Okay. what what I think is really cool about this is that if you're looking at America, you're looking at Britain, you're looking at Germany, you do have women pilots who were active during the war. Um, in Britain, you had women that were flying support staff missions a lot. Uh, one of my favorite books um of all time is called code name verity by elizabeth wine elizabeth ween and it's about these these british female pilots if you need something to read that is just will take you out of yourself this is an amazing book but 
none of the other air forces allowed women active combat roles except for the Soviets. And so much of that must have been to do with Marina, you know, already being such a celebrated pilot, speaking out in favor of it, really kind of exposing the nonsense of not having women pilots and one of the foremost aviators in the country was one. Exactly. And a lot of these women were brilliant pilots, but they weren't actually allowed to just join into active recruitment originally. Like, so Galina Yunkoska, who was a trained pilot and parachuting instructor at this point in time, as soon as the call goes out on the 8th of October, she immediately signs up. However, the military basically said that she was much too valuable to go straight in. So she had to train 50 men in parachuting before she's allowed to join the regiment. For a little bit about her background is that she, her family was living on the border in the area that had been captured by the Germans when this happened. And she had no idea if they were alive or dead. And she, she described that all, all she could think about was flying and fighting off the Germans. And she had no, no self-preservation left. She just wanted to fight for her, the motherland. And even though she was already working as a parachuting instructor for the Air Force, that wasn't enough. When you, you go in and there's some amazing uh, documentaries and interviews of these women from the ones that survived from like the, the 1980s and 1990s that you can go on YouTube and watch. There's also a really brilliant Swedish TV show about the Night Witches where, where it's just all these interviews and I, I spent most of yesterday watching them is that with them, you know, in their kind of their later years talking about this passion that they had to fight and to die for the motherland was just, I, th- I found them completely awe-inspiring. And I don't think that's something, you know, when you, you know, we've obviously in the run up to V Day been listening to lots of veterans talk about their experiences during the war, a lot of British veterans and that kind of fanatical sort of drive. It's not the same, you know, it's more about just sort of trying to get through the war rather, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I, I, I guess that's something to do with the kind of like power of Soviet ideology and also maybe the sort of sense of divine almost a purpose of being the pilot of being you know the first of your kind oh yeah completely and also the fact that this attack came without you know it came suddenly without a declaration of war i think really just it stirred this kind of latent nationalism that as as you said the the soviet ideals were already stirring up to just this forever that they were willing yeah. to do anything to defend the country a sort of sense i guess also yeah because they were you know the the enemy was at the gates it was very much about national preservation there's another woman katarina fedotov who was a mother and a factory worker um working in a factory to producing planes she was already a trained pilot and instructor and she basically her she received a telegram that her husband who was fighting um the germans in the army had died and she just quit her job left mm-hmm. gave her two-year-old daughter to her parents and headed to moscow and and joined marina's regiment she'd been writing for months and months oh. to the defense minister asking to let her fly and let her be a pilot 
And she said that when she left her daughter with her, her now dead husband's parents, she hoped that they would be able to explain to her little girl when she was older why her mother had to go fight the Germans. Because she knew she was probably going to die. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's giving me shivers, Sarah. <laughs> and I think every single woman that, that you read the stories of these women, they're just so incredible. Oh my god, I'm starting to cry. <laughs> Me too, I think it must be the pandemic, but I've been really emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right, all right, all right, dear Mr. James, keep it together. So Marina Raskova, when she was talking to some of these women in their interviews to come into the re regiment, because she interviewed every single woman, she says, the girls I do choose must understand beyond any doubt whatsoever that they will be fighting against men and that they themselves must fight like men if you're chosen you may not be killed you may be burned so your own mother would not recognize you you may be blinded you may lose a hand a leg you will lose your friends you may be captured by the germans do you really want to go through all this and every single woman that came said yes. The um, like the fatalities suffered by fighter pilots again, and I'm afraid I speak very much from a British war perspective. But I know the fatalities suffered by, by fighter pilots were unthinkable. Um, and yeah. it was if you was it I think in Britain if you had a, if you had a hundred survived a hundred flights that was it you were effectively retired because it was such a rare occurrence. And the injuries sustained were, again, some of the most horrific because the um, the gas tanks were located at the front of the planes and they would effectively explode over you. And a lot of the pioneering, sort of like, I know certainly during the First World War where there was some limited aviation, that's where much of the most pioneering sort of activity in plastic surgery and facial reconstruction took place was working with aviators because of the kind of injuries they sustained i mean you had to be i mean again i'm, I'm frightened of boris spikes so uh <laughs> i can't imagine the, the 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 courage involved so yeah so there were just over a thousand women recruited to new regiment and these included mechanics and support staff as well as pilots many of them were just out of school the age ranged from 17 to 26 but most of them were about 22. They're babies. I know, couldn't tell my ass from my elbow at 17. <laughs> so Marina and Major Yodona Burskana, who led the training, took all of these women out of Moscow to a place called Ingalls, guess who that was named after, and started training them. They started training for six months and they did two years worth of studying in these six months. So they were flying 14 hours a day and studying the rest of the day. You know, I kind of wonder if they were being given speed, to be quite honest. They were learning how to fly at night with only rudimentary instruments, no radio communication. The women flew in pairs with a pilot and a navigator. In April, they get their assignments, and there's this lovely little bit that I was reading about where they're ordered to all cut their hair so it's no more than two and a half inches. And there was this is the part where they start crying. 
because you know they've they've gone through this they're willing to die for their fatherland but some of them are just not willing to cut their hair and there was this one woman lily litvak who had the most gorgeous blonde hair and she she kind of refused to cut it and was crying so much that the other girls like put it hid it under a cap and and basically begged marina not to make her cut it and then the general makes a surprise inspection and he's looking around at all of these women in their short hair and their their giant uniforms because the the boots they were given were like size 41 size 42 they're all made for men and the the uniforms were gigantic and these are generally quite petite women you know um and so yeah. they they'd had to you know take scissors to and and thread to make the uniforms fit them they had to put like old copies of the pravda in the shoes so that they could walk in their boots <laughs> and then they've just cut their hair and they they jen you can look at the pictures they look like boys they look like boys dressed up as soldiers. And the general was just kind of aghast at this. And then he saw Lily and he said, ah, now there, she looks like a real woman. And so after that, Marina said that they could, even though it was in the rule books, that their hair had to be this length, as long as they kept it out of their faces, it was okay. Lily uh, Litvak is, is one of my favorite women. Again, I would love to do an entire episode on her, who always tried to look her best she kind of embraced her femininity throughout the war she was this this poster girl in a way for these women pilots she was beautiful she learned to fly uh, at the age of 16 because she told her parents she joined a drama society and she'd actually joined the local aviation club and they were horrified at the idea of her you know flying an airplane and joining and then joining the military because she was still very very young but by that time it was kind of far too late wow and she she evidently she i'm not sure if she naturally had blonde hair but she used to get peroxide from the local hospital by like flirting with some of the male nurses to like keep her hair this beautiful blonde she was a blonde bombshell or should i say a blonde bomber Ooh, very good there are three aviation regiments that are created after their training and they were put into the different regiment based on their skills as pilots so the first was the 586 fighter aviation regiment so these were the best pilots these were the women that were going head to head oh. with the Luftwaffe, fighting them and trying to shoot them out of the sky you then had okay. the 587th bomber aviation regiment which was kind of like a, a normal daytime bomber regiment and these were the kind of the middle tier pilots were assigned to this and then you have the 588th night bomber aviation regiment which is the Night Witches. And that's the one that we're going to focus on. But I could not resist. I just wanted to give you a little taste of what happened to these other two regiments. Oh, do, yeah. The 586 Fiverr Regiment was the these most skilled aviators. And they were actually given the number one plane at the time, which was the Yak-1s. Only a third of all the women um, pilots were assigned to this fighting regiment, but it was a highly coveted honor, even though it was by far the most dangerous. This unit mm. was the first part to take 
part in active combat against the Germans on the 16th of April 1942. It ended up flying 4,419 flights, destroying 38 enemy aircraft in 125 air battles. And the commanders were Tamara Karnovia and Alexandra Grindev. And there were a lot of really amazing female pilots in this, such as Galina Bordinia, Olga Yanovskov, but Lily Litvak, our blonde bombshell, was the top pilot. And she she was doing just amazing stunts in the training. She was out, you know, she would go head to head with the training like top male Soviets and they wouldn't believe that she was a woman. And a stunner to boot. She's the first female pilot to shoot down a German aircraft. Her total victories ranged from 5 to 12 solo victories and 2 to 4 shared kills of her 66 combat missions that she flew. In about two years of operation, she was the first of two female fighter pilots who earned the title of Fighter Ace and holder of the record of the greatest number of kills by a female fighter pilot. Unfortunately, because we have said that this is, you know, the most dangerous job that you could have in the Air Force, she was shot down by the Lutanza in Oral during the Battle of Krusk and when she was attacking a formation of German aircraft. Oh dear, I mean, yeah, lots of them are gonna, I'm gonna try not to get too attached to anyone in this episode because I know we're gonna lose <laughs> a lot of them. Just a Quickly to look at the 587th Bomber Aviation Regiment, this is where we had the middle tier pilots. This was later renamed the 125th Guards Bomber Aviation Regiment. And what I kind of figured out from watching the Swedish documentary is that changing the names to a Guards Regiment is something that happened once they had reached a certain level of skill and it was quite an honor so that's why all of um, these had their names changed at different periods of time because it kind of um, it was a testament to how well that they were doing so this unit was again to the ire of a lot of the male units given the best soviet bombers the pe2s which many male units used obsolete aircraft which res resulted in a lot of resentment as you can Imagine. The unit flew 1,134 missions, dropping over 980 tons of bombs, and it produced five heroes of the Soviet Union. So the unit was initially commanded by Marina Ratskova. Ah, girl. Unfortunately, the tenure of this ended quite abruptly because Marina died in a just a flying accident while she was leading two PE2 twin engine dive bombers to their first operative airfield near Stalingrad and after this the unit was given to Valentin Morkov it was because of Marina's death kind of quite early on and she wasn't killed in combat or anything it was really just an aviation accident this is why the 126 Aviation Regiment and the 127th then became integrated into male units because she had been kind of the commander that was holding these three uh, units together. I think also it's interesting, isn't it, to remember that during this period in particular, it, regardless of enemy sort of counterattack, just flying was quite dangerous. Exactly. 
a lot of the women in the unit thought that because of Raskorvia's death, it would be an end to the female units. However, it, it wasn't. And the regiment was rewarded for its success actions in the North Caucasus by being named after its first commander. Raskovia's replacement was Major Valentin Morkov, and he w it was a man, and he was initially very, very unhappy being assigned to this all-female <laughs> unit. But he actually very soon saw like just how good these women were, and he remained very loyal to the women who'd proved themselves formidable fighters. That's what we like to hear. Unlike the other two units, um, the 125th flew the latest innovative Soviet bombers, the PE-2s. It was a very difficult aircraft to fly, and it required a three-person crew. What's, what's kind of fascinating is these aircraft were actually built for large men, and one of the problems is that they, some of the women were not literally large enough to fly these planes without like booster seats or like putting bricks and things on the pedals so that they could wow. reach them. Which I thought was <laughs> charming. As I said, this is a very difficult plane to land under even normal situations, but during emergency conditions it became incredibly unstable. And there's there's one incident in the summer of 1944 where Lian Matunonia received several wounds from a shell fragment that had rendered her unconscious and she's the pilot and her navigator Lina Yunotsia and the tail gunner Sasha Storfia managed to stabilize the aircraft and then revive her and she's struggling to remain conscious for the remainder of the flight but she still manages to land the aircraft successfully uh, and that brings us to the 588th Night Bomber Aviation Regiment, which is actually the subject of this podcast. So everything else has just been extended beautiful background up until this point. And it, it's funny because this, this is probably the most famous of the three regiments. It was the only one that stayed completely female from its inception through the end of the war. But it's actually where the lowest scoring pilots were assigned to because these were night raids. So they were, it was also kind of the least dangerous because they're flying at night. They're flying kind of under the radar of most of the, the existing German technology when they started. And they're flying these tiny little crop dusters, um, the PO2s. If you're interested in aviation or seeing this, you can actually go on YouTube and look at uh, modern day flights of these planes where people are taking them out. And they're made basically of plywood and canvas with a bit of metal thrown on. And it, it, it when I was watching them yesterday, it was incredible just to see the fact that this is all physics because they're these these tiny little planes. They've got open cockpits. There's a place for the pilot to sit and a place for the navigator to sit. There's no communication tools. They're completely open to the elements. And the entire engine is just the propeller on the front of the plane that's blowing air through the wings. That's it. It it's almost like a glorified wow. kite. It's really a kind of glider. It's like a it's a glider with its own engine. And it was, you know, you're comparing this to like the, the German Lufthansa, like planes that are just uh, the most kind of technologically advanced things. But 
what was incredible about this is the PO2s under, you know, with really good pilots could often out navigate the German planes. And one of the reasons for this is because they are these, these like light little gliders, their maximum speed is actually slower than the stall speed of the German planes. So the German planes are always having to go faster than them, no matter what. So they could maneuver kind of around the German planes and into safety. And you actually get points where it's like, these planes can be really, really, really low flying, where you have these women hiding, flying in the air behind hedgerows to escape the Germans from, from seeing them. Why do you, why do you think, mm, why the Night Witches, the, why is this regiment the most famous then of the three aviation regiments in which women were flying? Is it to do just with the power of the name and essentially the brand and the kind of like fear associated with the silent nighttime bombing raid? Maybe part of that. I think it's also because if you just look at the numbers, they were the most successful over the course of the war. So they're commanded by Yurika Bershanska for the whole four years that this regiment is intact. In total, the Night Witches flew 30,000 missions over the four years of warfare, and they dropped 23,000 tons of bombs. They destroyed 17 river crossings, 12 fuel depots, and 176 armored cars, among many other targets. So these women were just prolific. And they consisted of only 40 two-person crews who took off as soon as the sky darkened, and they didn't stop until first light. And they're in these really rickety little planes. They get the the name the Night Witches because they turn the engines off, you know, as I said, um, and glide into the targets. And they make this whoosh sound, like a witch's broom going through the air. And that's the only warning that the Germans had before the bombs dropped. Were other forces in the Second World War using similar planes in a similar fashion, or was this something fairly exclusive to the Soviet forces? This was fairly exclusive to this regiment within the Soviet forces. So, and, and the tactics... Because these are really crappy planes, right? And one of the reasons they're really crappy planes is because a lot of them get destroyed by the Germans initially. But then the other reason they're really crappy planes is because they were generally giving better bombers to the male regiments. The tactics that they devised here, though, were incredibly successful because of the technology. And I think it's such an interesting example of how the technology that is maybe not the most advanced does the best job because of the tactics that have to be developed around the limitations of the technology are incredibly successful. Absolutely. So the Night Witches flew multiple missions every night. So on summer nights, they would usually fly at least five missions. Like this is five missions per plane, per crew. And in the winter, they would fly on average 10 missions a night because you've got longer winter nights. 
And then when you get towards the end of the war, especially when they're they're going in and liberating Poland, they were flying up to 18 missions a night. And they were usually outflying the bomber units uh, that the men were doing by a significant amount. This is the, they're the, the 158th bomber regiment, the Night Witches, was the first one to get guard status. And I, I think that just shows you like how amazing that these women are. That if you're looking at the whole army, these are the women, even though they weren't the best pilots, that were probably doing the most damage and and having the most success militarily. What one of the things when I was looking watching these interviews, one of them, this old woman was you know talking about you know her her days in the war, and she said the reason that they were more successful than the men is because they didn't smoke, which I thought was fucking hilarious, frankly. But what she said was that they would you know these these little um, PO two planes could only carry a hundred kilos of bombs. And some of the bombs were a hundred kilos, so they'd have one bomb. Normally they'd have, you know, two, sometimes four. So they would go out, they would drop the bombs on the target. They they were basically being moved further and further west as they, they advanced against the Germans. And they'd fly back, they'd get the new bombs. And what they weren't doing, that the men were doing, is having cigarette breaks every time that they came back to get more bombs and go out again. So the women, because the women weren't smoking, they were able to fly a lot more missions, which I thought was hilarious. When you add up all the time lost to a cigarette break. But I mean, imagine they're not even taking, I mean, you'd like to think you could find the time for a cigarette or at least, you know, nice cold glass of water in between the flying mission. I mean, that just goes to show, you know, that they the, the rate of turnaround must have been incredible. And they were given this kind of military-issued chocolate toffee to eat to kind of keep them warm. You have to remember that they're flying in the open air. They don't have any kind of protective headgear. They're flying in all weather. They're completely open to the elements. When it was raining or snowing, they, they said that they would sit in their airplanes in the freezing, freezing Siberian winter type cold, waiting for better weather. So as soon as the, the sky cleared enough for them to take off, they could take off instantly. And a lot of them got frostbite mm. on their faces, on their fingers. I kind of wonder if maybe this, this special toffee that they were, chocolate toffee they were being given, had... Uh, you know, some sort of amphetamines or something. <laughs> I don't mean controversial, but I really hope it did. <laughs> <laughs> the One of the, the reasons that they were flying so many missions every night as much as possible to prolonging the attacks as long as possible was to deprive the Germans of sleep. And it actually worked. The incessant attacks turned the Germans into almost like zombies. Uh, so it's actually a form of, as much a form of psychological warfare as it was. Completely. And the Germans were evidently incensed when they found out that the pilots were women. So what happened is the Nazi air defense forces fought back by placing rings of searchlights around likely targets. And so illuminated from below, these very flimsy kind of glider-like PO2s were no match for the guns and the tracer bullets. What the women did is then they responded with an innovation. So they started working together instead of working kind of singularly. And so they would fly in formations of three, sending out two planes ahead as decoys who would attract the attention of the searchlight operators 
and flying in opposite directions, zigzagging, trying to avoid being hit by the anti-aircraft fire. Meanwhile, the third plane glides in under the darkness and drops the bombs on the searchlights and the guns. The planes would then change places until all three had delivered their bombs. And it was really effective. There were a couple of times when this, as you can imagine, was not as effective. And there there were four crews, eight women, that were all killed on one night. Watching, again, the interviews of these women, you know, talking about it. As soon as that happened, they immediately grounded all of the planes. But they were out there the next night fighting. Not much of a breather. So the night witches were so fearsome that Luftwaffe airmen who downed one of its planes was immediately awarded the Iron Cross. Wow! It was, it was really interesting watching kind of the interviews. And there was this this one of the pilots was describing how after the war, and she was describing this horrible night where they lost eight women. Um, four crews all in in one go watching basically her her best friends die and then after the war a book came out and it had a picture of the male pilot mm. who had evidently downed all four planes and he he'd marked on the side of his plane that he had downed these four night witches and she was just so incensed i mean i, I completely get where she's coming from but at the same time they were dropping bombs on the germans <laughs> I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think what's amazing is, is the way they seem to have acquired this almost sort of supernatural kind of like power, hadn't they? You know, they, they, they were seen as almost kind of mythical creatures. And that's why he felt quite comfortable sort of celebrating their deaths, because in a way they weren't really women anymore, were they? They were, they were witches. They were something darker. The German soldiers that they took special pills and injections to develop night visions of a cat. Yes, and, and again, the fact that they were women just kind of increased their kind of otherness, their sense of sort of, you know, that they were somehow against nature, that they were somehow different rules applied. And what I think is incredible is that these women, they didn't have parachutes, they didn't have any guns, they didn't have any radio material, so they're the only way that they're navigating is they've got no radar is because the women the navigators they'd memorize the terrain through the maps and so they would look down at the terrain and navigate at night watching the terrain to get them where they needed to go from memory from these maps and the only way they could talk to the pilots because they don't have any communication is they had like these long rubber tubes that had kind of like a cup on each side that you could put up to your ear or put up to your mouth. Oh, like that game where you put like a piece of string between two cans. Exactly. I mean, these were basically in paper planes with two pieces of with two cans and a piece of string linking them. And and being incredibly successful. It really is incredible. And like when it was cloudy or something, because they're, you know, they don't have any radar, they're navigating by watching the ground. So you can imagine during cloudy weather, they're flying over and they're having to look between the clouds to tell where they are and drop the bombs between the clouds onto their targets. I mean... I, what blows my mind about this is that essentially in the absence of technology, they're, they're forced to deploy tactics and inventive ones at that. And actually those prove more successful than anything, you, than anything that could be manufactured at the time. And what they were doing was so much more 
I mean, natural. They were bird-like, weren't they? You know, that's how a bird navigates. You know, they use the. I don't know enough about our birds. About birds, but yeah, no, <laughs> Nazdiev uh, Popova, who's one of the the famous night witches, she said that when the wind was strong, it would toss the plane. In winter, when you look out to see the target better, you got frostbite. Our feet froze in our boots, but we carried on flying. Ooh. I think. One of the other things that's so interesting and one of the reasons that this, unlike the other two regiments that was started by Marina, this one stayed throughout the entire time is because you had dual controls in these planes, which means the navigators could fly when the pilots couldn't. So they would train placements as they went through. What would happen is that the, um, the mechanics would train as navigators the weapons loaders would train to become mechanics, the navigators would be training to be pilots. And because they had these dual controls, they're very good planes to learn on. There are a couple of times when, you know, the pilot was shot or something and the navigator would have to come over. One of the interviews I watched was this woman who was saying, you know, she, she, she's one of the women that signed up, had was not a pilot, had no military experience, and she said she she wanted to be uh, one of the bombers, which is the people. And they said, okay, so you you want to like you know you realize the bombers just like load the bombs into the plane. And she's like, no 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 no, I want to kill the fucking Germans. Like I want to shoot them. And they're like, well the planes don't have any guns, so they made her a navigator because the navigators were the ones that were actually dropping the bombs. The pilots were just flying the planes, and the navigators figured out where to go and were the ones that were dropping the bombs, and she loved it. What happened to the Night Witches after the war? So after the war, the Soviet government stood down the female units. Some of the female combatants successfully continued career within the Soviet military, but most actually returned to their civilian lives. The experience did have kind of a lasting impact on like the, the female psyche within the Soviet Union. Many women continued to demonstrate their quality to men. Because these were the only active female combatants during the Second World War, weren't they? I mean, there weren't women in the infantry or the Navy. I mean, there would have been, obviously. Actually, no, there, there were. There were over half a million wow. women serving in active Soviet military combat roles alongside men by the end of the war. They were excellent snipers, they operated anti-aircraft artillery, some even became tank commanders. Oh my goodness. I guess we'll keep coming back to the fact that, you know, like this was a home front war for the Russians, wasn't it? You know, they were they were being invaded and so it would have been all hands on deck. Exactly. One of the veterans, Marina Chechnya, continued to fly after the war and she said that even though the government had demobilized her from the military reserve, she she devoted herself to flying as a sport in an attempt to show that here, too, women were men's equals. Marina Chechnyevna established a number of flying records in her instrument and landing skills in the Yak-18s and actually earned a chi uh, earned the title of champion of the USSR in 1953 for her flying record after the war. This was the first I'd really heard of the Night Witches. I think it was, you know, we both only heard of them fairly recently, but are they, were they an important part of kind of like Soviet, post-war post, post -war Soviet lore, I suppose? Are they, 
widely known and venerated within within the former Soviet Union. So within the Soviet Union, there were books about them, but almost none of these went abroad. And even within the Soviet Union, I don't think that they they sustained the reputation that they had during the war. It's almost like they were a brilliant necessity at the time, but as the Soviet Union moved away from World War II, it was quite easy to forget them and their heroics. I actually have a quote um, from Major Marta Meritus when she's talking about going into one of the reunions that they have, and there was a commander under whom we fought during the war asked why we had been asked to this reception and who we were. We had to explain that we were the pilots and mechanics of the 125th Guards Regiment. And he said he thought it had been a male regiment, and it surprised him to learn about us after the war. Even now, very few men can believe that women crews could fly the dive bomber. So I think that kind of, that experience of, like, even within the military, men being like, what? Who? Who are you? Why are you here? Continued to happen uh, throughout the rest of their lives. I mean, you wonder to to what extent that was just that, let's face it, there was a lot going on on all fronts for the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And to what extent that was, you know, purposeful sort of historic revisionism and the idea of the female fighter pilot not sitting well alongside and return to admittedly egalitarian but uh, gender roles afterwards I, mean, I don't know I don't really know that sort of Soviet uh, you know gender gender equality yeah I think the idea of gender equality was always stronger than the reality yes. <laughs> Isn't it? and I think there was I mean if we if we're looking at the kind of the history of the Soviet Union I think there was a lot more gender equality you know in the 1950s and the 1960s than kind of in America say but you know, I I can't say that we could say that now, and I, I don't think it kind of was sustained, really. Yes. Just because the sort of, like, domestic idyll of 1950s, you know, kind of America wasn't... Like, they, they didn't have the same... Yeah, no, yeah, I don't need to talk about that. That's too much off the point. So by the end of the war, 32 night witches had given their lives in defence of their homeland. Marina Rotskovia, who had been instrumental in leading the Soviet Union to become the first nation to officially allow women in combat, died in the crash. It, there's, this, there's this wonderful quote. Um, Nazdvia Popova, who was one of the, the pilots under the Night Witches, was shot down numerous times, and she once returned from a mission to find her plane riddled with over 42 bullets holes and she died i think in 2011 and there's an amazing obituary in the new york times about her which i'd encourage everyone to go read they they ended the obituary with um a quote from her i'd like to share because i i just thought it was so beautiful she says i sometimes stare into the blackness and close my eyes I can still imagine myself as a young girl up there in my little bomber. And I ask myself, Nadia, how did you do it? Oh my goodness. I mean, that's sort of how I'm left feeling after this whole episode. You know, how did 
any of them do it. And actually, 32, I mean, that is, I don't in any, by any means want to diminish that loss of life. But when you consider the damage that they did as a unit. And eight of those 32 died in one night. So I, I think it's just, it's incredible, actually, as you say, how many of them survived. I just wanted to know, ask what Nadia went on to do with her life. She married a fellow fighter pilot and then worked as a flight instructor. Oh. And she raised a son who became a general in the Belarusian Air Force. You know, and I, I really wish that we had hours and hours to devote to every single one of these women, all of these night witches who flew in the Soviet Air Force at a time where no one else was letting women into active combat. But I hope that this has been just a lovely kind of taster into this and that it's piqued your curiosity and you're going to go away and... Look at Nadia Popova. Lily. Lily Litvak. I mean, I'm definitely, I want to, I mean, as always, first thing I want to do is look at some photos, but I'm desperate to know what they all did afterwards as well, you know, because how do you have that experience and then go back mm -hmm. to an ordinary life? But I guess that's the question with everyone who fights in a war, isn't it? How do you do that and then go back? One of the things that I really absolutely loved about researching for this episode was being able to watch these interviews with these old women they were they were looking through their photo albums from the time of the war and describing just i think in many ways this was the most important period of their lives for them it must have felt like a kind of fever dream almost though the silence sort of like rushing you know rushing through the air at night that time when they were a witch i remember one of them said when we entered the war we didn't think that it would go on for so long but we later realized that the war itself had become our lives and they became something else during it something else that i'm thinking about all the kind of airborne women in you know in mythology valkyries harpies you know a woman in the air bodes no well unless she's a fairy <laughs> <laughs> And even, even then you get the impression that they just kind of appear like Glenda the Good Witch. Yeah. They don't actually fly yeah. at night. I think it taps into something very, very ancient fear. I think that's probably one of the reasons that they embraced the name Night Witch so much. Absolutely. A masterclass in, um, in horror branding. <laughs> I mean, it was quite an emotional episode for us, wasn't it? But I think that's entirely to do, well, that's partly exacerbated by the, the time in which we find ourselves. But, you know, good to have a reminder that, you know, may, heroic as we may feel, binge-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> and hard done by, as we may consider ourselves. <laughs> we ain't done nothing yet. I've just enjoyed reading into their story so much, and I'm looking forward very much for our next episodes and again if you have an idea for an episode please tweet at us some of you have already done that we appreciate it and you know share some of your own stories of you know heroic yeah. women that inspire you all right my dear well i gotta go polish my doorknobs again <laughs> that's a joke i haven't for a while now actually getting a bit laughs that's how that's when it gets you Thank you so much for listening to us and sharing this episode. 
and we will be with you again soon Bye. Bye. We sit in coffee shops and discuss the subject of love. We speak of our men folk, then we give up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Demons and Dames. We will respectfully encourage you to rate us, to review us, and to recommend us to your friends. And enemies. It might make you like them a bit better. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Demons Dames Pod, on Twitter at Dames Demons. Or you can get in touch with us via Facebook or demonsanddames at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. He says that he loves her. But now